chapter 2. Sunday morning, we just began last week a a short uh, kind of prophecy update on things, just so in the, you know, concern of my heart as I watch the news and all of the events that are going on, I just have this blessed privilege of being able to uh, manage it. Guys, just stay right where you are. I'll get to you. Uh, Thank you. But being able to look at what's going on in the world and to run it all through the grid of biblical prophecy and to realize this isn't running out of control, that this is marching very steadily toward God's appointed end. And I want everyone to enjoy that peace. And so that's the heart behind this little prophecy update that we find ourselves in the middle of. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And you just get their attention by waving at them and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. You ought to find that Bible marked right to our passage that we'll be studying this morning, Daniel chapter 2. Let's pick things up. Read along with me in your hearts in chapter 2, verse 24. And therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. And then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. And that is worth circling in your Bible, that phrase, the latter days. It means the very end of the age. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed about what would happen, uh, come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who, uh, who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your hearts. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image at its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold uh, were crushed together and became like chaff from the winter threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so there was no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And this is the dream. And now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O Lord, are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory, and, whatever the ch- and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand. He has made you ruler over all of them. You are this head of gold. But after you 
shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others." Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and that the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all other kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for every chapter, every book, every paragraph, every jot, every tittle. We thank you for the intent of a great Father's heart behind every bit of the revelation that we hold in our hands from Genesis to Revelation. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to study it together this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for the further privilege that we need never read this book of yours independent of supernatural health, help. And so we thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, the author of this Bible, who is eager to take it off of these pages, Lord, and to build it into our lives, our thinking and our doing, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And that's what we ask for today, Lord, that you would more thoroughly furnish us unto every good work through the study of your word this morning. Conform us into the image of Christ, we pray. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last Sunday morning, as I mentioned, we embarked on what I think will be a very short but uh, thorough examination of uh, the, the prophetic update from the Scriptures. And we began by examining what the Bible prophesies concerning the Middle East and specifically concerning the nation of Israel in the last days, those days when we talk about the last days biblically, it's talking about the days that will immediately proceed in human history, Jesus' return to rapture the church uh, from the earth, and then ultimately seven years later return for his second coming and establishing a thousand-year reign, the millennial reign of Christ, and ultimately everything gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. And this week, as we continue the series, I want to do so by focusing upon Europe, which has been very much in the news for the last couple of weeks, 
and to look specifically at what the Bible has to say is going to be occurring geopolitically in the world in the last days. And so we'll do this principally from uh, Daniel chapter 2 where we've read, but we'll also quote uh, from other parts of the Bible because this is spoken of uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Bible prophecy is very simply God telling us history in advance. And when God, because he lives outside of the realm of time, there really is no future, there is no history, uh, there is no past. And so when God gives prophecies, their fulfillment of those prophecies is as sure as anything that you might read as you pick up a history book uh, and read about what has happened in uh, accurately concerning human history. We can verify the accuracy of what it is that's occurred in the past by virtue of the fact that it is in the past. But when God, and He is uniquely able to do this, speaks of the future, He is able to do with concerning the future what we can only do with the past. And the fulfillment of His prophecies that He gives are as sure as past history, as sure as whatever has already occurred. I think that it's helpful to realize that a huge percentage of the Bible as it was originally written, uh, constituted prophecy at the moment that it was written. I mean, the percentages I've seen it be as high as 70%, that at the moment that someone was given, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that this was something God was going to do, and then the record that surrounded that promise and then the fulfillment of that promise, you know, fills uh, fully uh, 70%, I understand, of the entire Bible. 25% of the Bible is given specifically to the prophecies that are, are given, not even uh, the time and attention that is given to uh, their fulfillment. Interesting, for example, Abraham was given the promise that a great nation would be born of him and that ultimately that nation would come into the land of Canaan and ultimately possess it as their own. And the land of Israel is known as the promised land for the simple reason that God promised it to Abraham and the Jewish people, a promise that came to pass. And a large segment of the Old Testament given to the time that that prophecy was given and then the fulfillment of that prophecy. God's Word prophesied that the children of Israel and the, is a part of one day coming into that land and possessing it would spend 400 years in the land of Egypt, and so they do, did. The entire book of Joshua is a record of uh, the children of Israel's conquest of the promised land, just as God had prophesied. The entire book is given to prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy. David's call to be the next king of Israel and the fulfillment of that prophecy, it, it fills very significant portions of the historical books of the Old Testament, vast portions of the Old Testament, virtually all of the major and minor prophets that constitute the Old Testament contain the prophecies concerning the future captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians and then ultimately the southern kingdom of Judah to be conquered and defeated and taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And then then not only the giving of those prophecies, but then the fulfillment of those prophecies. And then, of course, we have all of the prophecies that fill the Old Testament concerning 
the coming of the promised Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, this very detailed description that God gives in His Word of the Savior that was to come and to be born into human history for the salvation of mankind. And Jesus fulfilled fully 300 of those prophecies in His first coming, and He will fulfill the remainder of, uh, of those prophecies at His second coming and beyond. Jesus prophesied concerning His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And so much of the New Testament and the Gospels given over to those prophecies and to the fulfillment of those prophecies. Daniel prophesied of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and so it came to pass. And the point that I want to make is that biblical prophecy is not something odd in the Bible. So when we turn to prophecy and we study prophecy as it relates to what God is saying concerning the end times… Uh, this is not something that is unusual in the Bible or some odd format that makes it different from the rest of the Bible. The entire Bible follows this particular format, and it's important for us to realize that prophecy and those fulfillment of prophecies, it fills the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and indeed, the ability to give prophecies and then for those to be fulfilled 100% accurately is one of the great proofs of the divine inspiration of the Word of God. And as Christians who know and take seriously these biblical prophecies having to do with the end of the age uh, and being Christians that view prophecy with that kind of an understanding, we shouldn't be the exception, but we should be the rule. And today there is a, in the last 20 years, certainly the last 15 years in the body of Christ uh, in general, it's not true of it entirely, but there has definitely been an ebbing away, a moving back from an emphasis upon biblical prophecy, what it has to say about the last days or the end times, almost as if it was never in the book, and uh, as a result, something we wouldn't need if we were that generation to have built into our lives. And I think that so often people look at it and say, yes, really, I mean, we know that Jesus is coming back and so forth, and, but let's not, uh, you know, spend too much time on it. Uh, the trendy thing to do today is to be missional. Let's focus on the world that we're in, helping people that the world that we're in. But, you know, you don't have to pick or choose on that. Be missional. Be who and what God has called you to be every day of every moment of the day and the night in terms of impacting the world, but also understand what prophecy has to say because it does something important in us, something necessary in us, or it wouldn't be in the book. What I'm concerned about is that this group of Christians who take this seriously at the moment in the general body of Christ is becoming a smaller and smaller group. And, uh, and if you notice that happening, where people that once used to be very turned on to this kind of thing, they were very fluent in all of this, and they've moved away from it, don't you join their ranks. Wait till they come back and become uh, students of this once again and allow it to be an important part of their Christian life. This is in the Bible for a specific reason. It does something good in, uh, inside of us, 
and uh, historically when people, and especially God's people, have ceased to take God's prophecies seriously and to ignore them in order to eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die, those prophecies all end up coming to pass. And it tends uh, to end up having uh, people ending up being very, very uh, surprised and badly surprised. Now, to Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation by Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar is the king. Uh, he, he is the king of Babylon, and he has a dream. And that dream is a revelation from God himself. At about that time, it's about 600 B.C., about 2,600 years ago, very much in the same time frame as when Ezekiel was prophesying, uh, as we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of this world-ruling empire known as the Babylonian Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar was at the time far and away the most powerful man in the entire world. His word was law. There wasn't anything in this whole wide world that he wanted that he couldn't have, that he couldn't have a hundred of, or a thousand of, or a hundred thousand uh, of. And he possessed wealth and power beyond imagination. And yet one night as he tries to go to sleep and he's laying on his bed in an attempt to sleep, he begins to think about what people like that probably tend to think about, and that is, what's going to happen to all of this after I die? When you only got two quarters in your pocket to rub together, you go right to sleep. You don't worry, who's going to get my 50 cents after I die? But when you have this kind of wealth and this kind of power, you think about that kind uh, of stuff. And he's probably wondering, what's going to happen to this great Babylonian empire uh, when I'm dead and gone? And in this dream that he dreams is God's answer to his wonderings. But the Lord reveals uh, to Nebuchadnezzar and to us far more than what would happen to the Babylonian empire at Nebuchadnezzar's death. But the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar and us a revelation. Again, notice in verse 28, what will be in the latter days. And the word latter there for days in the original language, it means last. It means extreme end. It's talking about uh, the final part of human history. In other words, the Lord gives Nebuchadnezzar and us revelation of human history in advance from the time of Nebuchadnezzar all the way to Jesus' second uh, coming, which brings an end to man's rule on planet earth. It brings an end to Gentile world power. Now, the problem that Nebuchadnezzar faced when the Lord gave him this dream is that he recognized this dream has come to me from God. He recognizes that it's uh, supernatural. He recognizes that it is an answer to his questions and to his pondering, but he couldn't figure the dream out. He couldn't make any sense out of it. So he calls all of his magicians, all of his astrologers, all of his wise men, all of these things, people who dabbled in the occult and in the supernatural to, divine, to try and divine the future, to understand these kinds of things and attempt to uh, get them to help him uh, to interpret the dream. And they come upon the scene and they declare that they're very happy to interpret the dream if the king will just simply tell them the dream first. Well, you don't become the head of a world-ruling empire. Uh, uh, you know, this guy didn't just come out of the pumpkin patch. 
And he realizes, hey, if I tell them the dream, they might come up with any old kind of a crazy interpretation just to please me, and it's not the interpretation of the dream. And it's very important to Nebuchadnezzar that he understands the interpretation of the dream. So he declares to them, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream, and then you tell me an interpretation. I want you to declare the dream to me, so that, and then the interpretation, so then I can know that the interpretation is correct. Well, they squawk like crazy. They said, nobody's ever asked anybody, uh, their wise men, to uh, be able to interpret a dream or a vision without first giving them the dream or the vision. And Nebuchadnezzar, as is the case with people who are in power like this, he's very impatient with no or hesitation among his servants. And so he declared to them, if you do not tell me both the dream and the interpretation, I will hack you into small pieces, and then after you're gone, I will tear down the walls of your house. In other words, everyone in your family is going to die in poverty after your death. Well, he knows how to light a fire. Uh, under people and motivate them, as carnal as it might be. But he did also tell them that if they were able to do both of those things, provide him with the dream and then the interpretation that he would make them fabulously wealthy and powerful as well. And so this was the demand that was made. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want any excuses, and so everyone uh, heads off and, uh, and the orders are given by Nebuchadnezzar to destroy all of the wise men and all of the counselors in the kingdom of Babylon. Well, Daniel, the great prophet Daniel, and his friends, captives from Judah, they're in uh, the Babylonian empire at this time as captives. They've risen to a very high position and become counselors to the king, at least Daniel had. And so he hears now about the decree, realizes he's about to be hacked up in little pieces as well, and he sends a message back to the king and asks for a little bit of time so he can seek God for both the dream and the interpretation. The king allows this to him, and Daniel and his three friends go to prayer, and in response to prayer, the Lord reveals to Daniel both the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And then having received that dream and interpretation, Daniel immediately sought an audience with the king in order to tell him uh, both and to stop the execution of the counselors. The audience was uh, uh, was granted before the king, and after giving the Lord credit for the revelation, Daniel proceeded to pronounce to Nebuchadnezzar both his dream and its meaning. The dream itself, as we have read, is that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and there's this great image that is in front of him, a great statue of enormous uh, size. The image itself has a head of gold. It has a chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs are of bronze. Its legs are made of iron, and its feet are made up partly of iron and partly of clay. And then while Nebuchadnezzar was watching this image in his dream, there was this stone that came cut without hands, and the idea is that it was powerful, that it was self-existent, not made, man-made, that it is something divine. And it struck then the image, not in the head, 
not in the chest, not in the waist, not in the legs, but it struck the image in its feet of iron and clay. In other words, all of this image is going to be brought down in the time of this reign of, that is represented by the feet of iron and clay. And this then having hit the image in the feet of, made up of iron and clay, The image then begins to collapse in pieces, and it's all crushed together. It piles in on itself until it lays in this gigantic heap that would be similar to all of uh, the, the, you know, the hull around the grain that would be in the sifting of the wheat and the chaff. That's the word I'm looking for. So like this great pile of chaff on a winnowing floor, it sits there. Uh, all in a heap, and then this great wind comes and blows across, and every bit of the image is blown away until there isn't even a trace of it. And then the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the entire earth. And so Daniel says, there you go, Nebuchadnezzar, that was your dream. Wow, what a dream. And, and so no wonder Nebuchadnezzar, as he sees this thing, he's curious about it, and he wants an interpretation uh, for this dream. Daniel then revealed in verses 36 to 45, the, revealed the interpretation of the meaning of the dream. And he declared to Nebuchadnezzar that he and Babylon were the head of gold. And this gold is the greatest value of all in terms of the metals in the ancient world. So Nebuchadnezzar was greatest in power. In terms of just pure power, Nebuchadnezzar had it. He was a king of kings, as he's declared in the passage. Anything that he said was law. He didn't answer to anybody, no senate, no elections, no parliament, no council, no allies. He did whatever he wanted without limitation. But Daniel then declares that the Babylonian Empire, as great as it was, it would not outlast human history, but it would give way uh, to another empire. And he speaks of that second empire that would follow in verse 39, symbolized by the silver chest and arms. Daniel prophesies of this with even greater detail later in chapter 5 and again in chapter 7. And as silver is inferior to gold, so too this second kingdom would be inferior to the Babylonian kingdom in terms of pure power. And we know from world history that the Babylonian empire did indeed give way to another world-ruling empire known as the Medo-Persian empire. As the Medes and the Persians united together under a king by the name of Cyrus, who then toppled and overthrew the Babylonian Empire. And because it was a confederation of two peoples, uh, the Medes and the Persians, the power of its leaders was far less pure and absolute than the power of Nebuchadnezzar. And thus, this kingdom is characterized by a metal inferior to gold, the metal silver. Daniel then goes on in verse 39, and he spoke of a third world-ruling empire. And we know from uh, the uh, history following the Medo-Persian empire was the Grecian uh, empire, symbolized here by the belly and the thighs of bronze. And again, Daniel goes into greater detail and prophesying concerning this in chapter 7 and 8. So there's no question about how this is being identified prophetically 
in, uh, in the book of Daniel. And the Grecian Empire, of course, it uh, rose under the leadership of Alexander the Great, who is said to have wept that there was no more of the world to conquer uh, in, as he con- conquered so much of it at such a young age. In his 20s, he conquered the entire known world. Astonishingly, he extended the uh, Greek empire all the way into India. That You take out a map, I mean, you're talking all the way from Greece all the way through that entire area of the Middle East and then across into the subcontinent of India. Unbelievable uh, what he was able to accomplish. Daniel then in verse 40, he prophesied of a fourth world ruling empire which would follow the Grecian empire and it would be characterized, he said, by legs of iron. And it would be an empire that would, like iron, break in pieces. The language is very strong. It would shatter all things. It would crush. And the world-ruling empire, of course, that followed the Grecian Empire was the Roman Empire. And uh, uh, appropriately described as iron. Uh, The Roman Empire subdued much of uh, the world there at that time in Europe and in the Middle East. And they did it by power. They did it by strength. We talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that they established. Well, they did establish a peace through Rome. And the idea was, if you mess with Rome, I'm going to bust your face. And, uh, I mean, they did it with force. And nobody even thought of rebelling against Rome and certainly in its time of its greatest power immediately before its fall and uh, without, because they knew to do so, ultimately Rome would rise up and you would literally be crushed. They would make an example of you. And then Daniel in verses 41 uh, to 43, and he speaks about it in verse 33 as well. For those of you who are uh, students of this kind of thing and you want to look at it a little more closely later, Daniel then describes a fifth world-ruling empire, and it's characterized by feet and toes that are made up partly of clay and partly of iron. And this, of course, is of enormous interest uh, to us today because since the breakup of the Roman Empire, Uh, After ruling the world for uh, almost a thousand years, the world has not had a world-ruling empire. Even in our day, when Hitler rose up and conquered uh, virtually all of Europe and uh, even beyond, it was the idea of establishing the Third Reich, and his idea was what he had established there in conquering these lands, that this was going to be a uh, German rule over the world that would last a thousand years. That's what was going on in his mind. It wouldn't last even ten years. And uh, so the Roman Empire was the last great empire, world-ruling empire. And what uh, Daniel describes here in terms of the feet and the toes and so forth is yet future. Uh, The fifth world-ruling empire, we're told again in verse 28, will arise in the latter days. And it is during the reign of this empire that Jesus will return at his second coming. He is the stone that is not cut out by hands, and Jesus will return at his second coming, and he will bring an end to man's long history and his long rebellion against God. 
And so let's just examine the, the characteristics of this final uh, kingdom and see if there isn't something present in the world today that uh, resembles it, at least in germ form. The ten toes, we're told, represent uh, ten kings uh, or ten leaders of ten nations who uh, will unite together to become one kingdom. And, uh, and in speaking this and in saying this, I'm using uh, stuff, uh, you know, verses, passages from Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17. This is spoken of throughout the Bible. And all of it is written in order to reinforce this great truth that ten kings or ten national leaders will unite together, they'll give their power and authority one day uh, to a man who is known as the beast biblically, but popularly known as the Antichrist. For example, in Revelation chapter 17, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And these are of one mind, and they give their power and their authority to the beasts. Now, notice in verse 41 that the feet have iron in them, indicating that this final world-ruling empire has its roots in the old Roman Empire. It will emerge from the ruins of the old Roman Empire. Daniel is very careful, the vision or the dream from the Lord is careful to give that association. There will be a European connection to this final world-ruling uh, uh, em empire. And the old Roman Empire, of course, was centered in Europe. The final world-ruling empire is often referred to as the revived Roman Empire for this very reason, and it appears clearly that it will be. Now, notice in verses 41 to 43 that the feet and the toes are a mixture of iron and clay. And somehow this uniting of these ten, these ten leaders, these ten uh, nations, uh, partly, uh, partly they will be strong and part of them will be fragile or they will be weak. And this could mean that some of the nations that make up this confederation will be very strong and others will be uh, more fragile or comparatively weak. I think it's very interesting to notice in verse 43 that they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. That's fascinating description of all of this that Daniel gives. In other words, they will have this strong unifying factor of all coming from the same geographical area, all having their roots from the ancient Roman Empire, but they're going to have trouble uniting and then staying united in the same way that it's difficult to unite iron and clay in any significant way. And the culprit in terms of what is the, the culprit in terms of not this union not occurring uh, easily or successfully, at least initially, seems to be what D Daniel describes here as the seed of men, that is, people. And there is, this, there is going to be some, uh, the, the potential here of what's being described here is that the unification of these ten nations or these ten kings is going to be something that's difficult to achieve because of the broad mix of races and cultures that are represented by these ten nations. 
And what they need in order to unite, the Bible reveals to us, what these ten nations need in order to uh, achieve the greatness they, they desire is a very powerful leader who will possess a supernatural charisma and will thus be able to unite them despite all of their differences in terms of race and in terms of culture. And that person we know biblically is coming in the person of the Antichrist. We'll talk more about him another time, not today. And so as we look around the world today geopolitically, we ask ourselves as students of the Bible, can we find anywhere... Number one, a confederation of nations that exists in the area of the old Roman Empire. Uh, can we see an attempt by a confederation of nations to unite together to achieve some kind of great, uh, greatness in the region of the world known as Europe? Number two, uh, and as we look at that confederation, do we see that some of these nations are strong and some of them are weak? And number three, that they have somehow found a way of uniting together in such a way that has not required that each of these individual member nations will then lose their national identity any differently than the, the toes on a person's feet lose their national identity or individual identity, though a part of a foot and a part of two feet. And number four, to see some kind of a uh, confederation of nations in place, which is then also capable of dominating the world if they found just the right leader. And of course, as you look at all of this in the world, anyone that's paying attention, and if you're not paying attention, I don't criticize you. The news is harder and harder to keep track of. But we do need to know biblical prophecy in this vein. And as we look and see, is there anything that remotely looks like this in human history today, and of course the answer is yes, and it's called the European Union, which has come into existence very, very recently in human history within uh, the lifetimes of many who are in this room. The fact that Europe would ever unite to become a world economic or political force would have seemed absolutely absurd uh, 60 years ago in human history following a very, very long history of division and war in Europe, even two world wars, the two great world wars of human history were introduced into human history from Europe, and yet here they are. Despite the destruction of those world wars, the rebuilding of those nations, you would think that they would be kind of third nation as a result of that, but they're not. We look at them today, and here they are, strong, and they've united together to become an economic and political force. The EU was established uh, on, uh, for a lot of reasons, but a couple of reasons were simply they were tired of uh, fighting against one another. And they just come out of World War II, and it was like, listen, you know, the Hungarians can't attack the Austrians, and then vice versa, or the Germans, or the French, or the whoever in, in this thing, and we're continually having some kind of a spat between two nations that is spiraling into the destruction of the entire continent. We just can't be continuing to do this. 
Is there some way that we can unite together in a way that will make that more difficult for people to do? And of course, very, very important. Europe's whole history is, is a history of war. But they also recognized that they needed to unite together into an economic block that was capable of competing with the United States and with Asia and with China in order to uh, effectively compete in the world economy. They realized that individually we have no hope of going toe-to-toe with the United States or with Asia or with China as, as Germany alone or as Great Britain alone or as France alone, but we would be a force to be reckoned with Uh, economically. We could dominate. We could set policy. We could ensure the prosperity of our part of uh, the world. We could be in the driver's seat and uh, not be having to constantly react to what these other nations do. We could be in control of our own destiny and beyond. And so the European Union had this uh, as a part of its forming. It's currently made up of 27 nations with uh, England's exit Uh, in the last couple of weeks. Ultimately, we know biblically it's going to shake out to 10 in some way. Important to remember this. If I've lost any of you at this point, come back. Come back. It's important to realize this in what I'm saying. It is the Antichrist who will bring them into world prominence during the tribulation period. And the tribulation period is a seven-year period of God's judgment upon uh, the world as he pours his wrath out upon a Christ-rejecting world. The opening event of the beginning of that tribulation period, that seven years, is the breaking of a series of seals. The very first seal that is broken in the revelation is the revelation of the Antichrist, the unveiling of the Antichrist. When that seal is broken, the Antichrist comes forth in human history and into world prominence. Each and every one of the seven seals that are broken in the Revelation, they represent the wrath of God. And since the Bible teaches repeatedly for us as Christians that we are not appointed unto wrath, God's wrath, as Christians, that we will have to be raptured before he, that is the Antichrist, takes power and then leads this revived Roman Empire into world dominance. And the point that I'm making is this, that we don't need to see Europe become what's described in Daniel chapter 2 before the rapture or before the coming of the Antichrist, because it is the Antichrist who will make Europe or some variation of the European Union into this final world-ruling empire. But we should notice trends. We should notice things like the capacity for Europe to dominate the world if they only had the right leader. We ought to be able to recognize as a fulfillment of Scripture the growing strength uh, of the EU. So don't run home after the 4th of July weekend and on Tuesday get on your computer and buy stocks in European companies right now or buy euros or become a currency trader on, uh, unless you know what you're doing. Much of Europe's rise to its full power 
will not occur until after the Antichrist takes power, including the number of nations committing allegiance to him, ultimately shaking out to 10. You look at it today, we look at it today, we say it's 27. And we realize, how in the world is it going to become 10? It can happen in an instant. Uh, once he comes into power or he chooses the nations that he wants to bring into that block or however it, it might work out. All of this doesn't have to happen before the rapture of the church. Indeed, it will happen after we are gone. And so initially, the Antichrist's focus will be to turn this confederation of nations into an economic powerhouse. That will be his goal. And then uh, when he does that, and he will establish an economy in Europe that will exceed everybody's expectation, he will then at that point uh, take uh, control, as he already will, of the governments over their military, and he will then try and dominate the world militarily. Now back to kind of the raw capacity of uh, the European Union to become what Daniel describes here. They have 27 member states. They have their own flag, their own currency, their own parliament, their own courts, their own bank, and so forth. A total population of over 400 million. Before Brexit, uh, it possessed the largest economy in the world. Uh, England has the fifth largest economy in the world, so their exit from uh, the European Union has brought the EU down in that regard. They weren't the number one economy in the world um, immediately in front of the United States and China, who are kind of neck and neck at the moment in that regard. And then now uh, is, it, is it kind of uh, shakes out to this week in terms of world history. Uh, we still possess the largest economy in the world. China is second and the EU is third. For the, ta <clears throat> for the last 10 years, they have uh, possessed and developed their own military, which they've been very, very hesitant to use, but the Antichrist won't share their hesitancy. Uh, but Europe and this union is not without uh, their problems. They have serious problems. They have serious economic problems, just like everybody else in the world does. But they're trying to get a currency. I mean, we have one currency, 50 states united into one nation. That's a little bit easier than trying to unite 27 very independent nations into this block and then to make a currency to uh, undergird it, to make it something that is worth something on the world stage and so forth. They've got a lot of challenges. A lot of economists look at the European Union and they say, even before the Brexit, that it has, there is no future for it. There is no hope for it. There is no hope for the euro. Uh, this currency cannot hold up under this kind of a confederation. There is big problems coming. Uh, to this union uh, that they're going to have to work out. Another problem that they have is just keeping 27 nations operating in harmony, and uh, that's not an easy task for them. But I think that as you look at that and you see the chaos uh, of Europe, and it, it, it all matches what the Bible is talking about here, because without these problems, then they probably would not be willing ultimately to unite around a single great leader to lead them. These ten kings or leaders are going to hand over unbelievable power and authority and sovereignty over to one, over to one man, 
one day. That tells me that they're desperate. That tells me that they've got problems that they believe this man can fix. Countries don't hand over that kind of authority, that kind of power, uh, that give up that kind of sovereignty unless they're desperate to do it. And I think that ultimately Europe will be desperate to do it, to hand it over to someone who they believe is charismatic and powerful and can lead them out of the place uh, that, you know, the economic doldrums are worse that they might find themselves uh, in. And that's why Europe may fall into deeper problems to the point where the average onlooker or uh, person looking at them from afar, the United States or wherever it might be, and in the coming days before the rapture, where you might be tempted to think that it's preposterous in the light of the problems that they have, the disintegration, the infighting that they are experienced, that it's preposterous to believe that one day they could dominate the world. But remember, it is the Antichrist who will make them that, and they will not give that uh, become that before their authority is given to him. They will probably give him the authority, and he will ultimately possess that authority because, as I said, their problems will be as great, uh, so great that it will lead to desperation on uh, their part. All of this is fascinating in the light of the fact that the EU created the post of president of the European Union. They did that on November 9th, 2009, with the intent of giving kind of a, a, a united foreign policy voice to the Union. So they established a president over the entire EU. And uh, previously, the EU presidency had been kind of rotated every six months between uh, the group's uh, national leaders, and then the post then became uh, for a period of 2.5 years. The first president of the European Union was Herman von Rompuy uh, of Belgium. He narrowly uh, edged out former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, and an article followed in the British newspaper The Telegraph uh, lamenting the choice of Mr. Rompuy uh, and declaring the following. Limp waves of polite puzzlement circled the globe yesterday as leaders adjusted to the news that the much-ballyhooed EU president would be a mild-mannered, competent manager rather than a charismatic new face for Europe. And uh, little do they know, uh, charismatic is coming, but it's not going to be uh, good. So as we watch the continued emergence of China as a world power, with predictions that it's going to become the largest economic, uh, largest economy uh, in uh, the world, ultimately to surpass the United States, we can know that they may become that for a short period of time, but they will not become that in ultimately in terms of a world-ruling empire, whether because of their own internal problems with their own people, which is very complicated for the Chinese, or some complication of communism that will derail them. The world, final world-ruling empire will not be rooted or located in Asia. It will not be located in North America, but it will be located in Europe, a revived Roman empire after the rapture. Import, I think it's interesting to realize that the United States is not mentioned in biblical prophecy, 
and, uh, imp- and that's important to realize. And people, sometimes they wonder why we're not mentioned in, uh, in the biblical revelation as some kind of a great power in the last days. All I know is that we aren't. Uh, we could become subject uh, ultimately to a, a nuclear holocaust, or there could be an economic collapse that would remove us from being that, uh, that kind of a, of a player. Could be the rapture of the church, which would put the United States of all of the powers that are mentioned here, and certainly in comparison to Europe, in greater disarray, uh, unless there's a revival in Europe soon, they'll hardly be touched by the rapture. Uh, in terms of proportion to their population. Or uh, maybe it, uh, the demise of the United States is right around the corner in the form of a Trump or Hillary uh, presidency. I had to work that in just to poke at you guys that are just so anxious about uh, all of this. Or it could be none of the above. It could be something entirely different. Now let's conclude here by noticing the arrival of the stone in verses 40 and 5 into human history. Notice that the world-ruling empire as it, that, that rises up out of the old Roman empire under the leadership of the Antichrist, that that is not the end of the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but that there is a future arrival of a great stone which will bring an end to man's kingdoms and his empires and which will mark the establishment of a kingdom that will never, ever end. And who is that stone? What is that stone? The Bible clearly teaches that that stone is Jesus. He is the stone not cut with hands. Jesus declared of himself in Matthew chapter 21, he said, Did you never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls, as he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Peter, he applies the same imagery to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. And it will be during this final world-ruling empire of man that Jesus will physically and forcefully and personally and dramatically re-enter into human history at his second coming. He will destroy his adversaries at the battle of Armageddon, and he will establish the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, after which he will then create a new heaven and a new earth in which he will wonderfully rule and reign forever and ever. And as Christians, that will be our portion forever and ever as well. The answer to the daily prayer of so many Christians, the plea to God, The request of God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The answer to that prayer is coming, and it is coming in the form of the fulfillment 
of this prophecy given by Daniel. The Lord's commentary concerning all of this, verse 45, the dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. And so there you have it, each of us this morning. The future has been told to us in advance. And I think that it's amazing to realize that when this prophecy was given 2,600 years ago, all of it was in the future. All of it had a future fulfillment. Babylon was firmly in power. There was no Medo-Persian Empire. There was no Grecian Empire. There was no Roman Empire much less a final world-ruling empire struggling to arise out of the ruins of the old Roman Empire. They had to accept in Daniel's day and down through the ages to accept the entire dream in Daniel's day on faith and not by sight. And, and here we are today. We have the luxury of being able to see this dream, four-fifths of it already having been fulfilled. And as surely as the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian and the Grecian and the Roman empires ruled the world, this final one is coming, and it will do so as well. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. But again, remember, ah, I don't want anybody forgetting this, so I repeat it for the fourth time. The rapture of the church will occur before the unveiling of the Antichrist. So we are never to be looking for the Antichrist. We are looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. So biblical history or biblical prophecy is history in advance. It's intended to fix our, take our eyes, lift them off of uh, the world events in the last days, as, as paralyzing as they might be, as fear-inducing as they might be, and to fix them firmly upon the return of Jesus Christ. As Jesus said uh, of these such prophecies, he said, when you see these things begin to happen, then look up and lift up your head because your redemption draws nigh. It is the mature Christian and it is the desire that each of us have for one another to look at the events of history as they're unfolding before us in this very hour and not to become panicked and frantic and crazed or anything like that, but to be able to look at it, assess it with maturity, of course, to realize the seriousness of the stakes of what it is that's going on, but to realize ultimately when the conversation ends, to be able to say, the Lord is coming soon. That's what it's intended to communicate to us. Human history is not out of control. It's all moving toward its God-appointed end, and for the Christian, it's a wonderful end. The rapture of the church into the glory of heaven, Jesus' second coming and the establishment of the kingdom age, followed by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, and untainted in any way by the fall, wherein perfect righteousness dwells, as Peter wrote in his epistle. Somebody said, all's well that ends well. Shakespeare wrote a play and entitled that, but the saying predated Shakespeare. All's well that ends well. And it does. It ends very well for the child of God. So if you wake up one morning and you discover that Israel is a nation again, 
surrounded by her enemies, surrounded by a major military power to the north, and that the area of the world that once constituted the core of the old Roman Empire is, is made up now of a confederation of nations that has the population base, the industrial base, the technological base to dominate the world. If it was just led by the right man, then you need to become a follower of Jesus. Because after the rapture of the church, a literal hell is going to break out in this world, and you don't want to be there, and you don't want to be a part of the eternal judgment that follows it. This is all very, very serious business, what we do with Christ and who we put our faith in. You can already sense, and I think the whole world does, the whole world is anxious. It's anxious, and there's just this sense that there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong. We know what's wrong as Christians, but they don't know what's wrong. And, they, and there's that sense that something's wrong here. This is spiraling out of control. This, the foundation is being played with now in the whole house. The whole world is shaking and no confidence that anybody is going to put this back together. And then to, to, to take in to realize that you're not alone in feeling that and that you're feeling that for a reason. But there is a rock. There is a foundation that you can build your life on and your eternity upon that will never, ever shake, and it's faith in Christ. Serious business, serious business. Christianity is not a game. If it has ever been a game in the United States of America, it is no longer a game. This is a serious time in human history that we've been called to serve the Lord and walk with him. Come into his kingdom, into his family, and there will be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. They'd love to pray with you related to any need that you might have in your life this morning as well. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray and I ask that our time in your word this morning would dispel in the heart of any of your children a spirit of fear, a spirit of anxiousness, a spirit of panic, a spirit of unbelief in watching, Lord, the tottering and the reeling of the world in which we live today. But to be able to look at all of this in the light of your word, and the light of prophecy, prophecy that you knew we would need in order to keep our heads screwed on straight in this hour in human history and to keep our faith strong and something to be able to process all of it in a healthy and a hopeful, even a victorious way. And we pray, Lord, that you would use our time in your word this morning to produce that in each one of our hearts, not only this morning, but for the remainder of our pilgrimage. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.